Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. In October 2016, the World War I Historical Association hosted a World War I Centennial Symposium at the MacArthur Memorial. The symposium focused on the year 1916. The following is a presentation by Dr. Graydon Tunstall, a senior lecturer of history at the University of South Florida. Dr. Tunstall spoke on the topic, Eastern Front 1916, Russian Victory to Revolution. First thing I want to do is explain the differences between the Eastern and Western Fronts, because it's critical to understand that. One is the gigantic distance, 900 miles from the northern part of the Eastern Front to the southern. It is so large and it's divided by the Pripyat marshes that even the Russian army, the largest army, could not put soldiers in a line to protect all that area. Western Front, as you know, was much smaller. What this meant was you could have gigantic wars of maneuver, which everybody hoped for in the beginning of the war. It could occur on the Eastern Front. If you could use the poor railroad systems, except for the Germans, which was excellent, to get a number of divisions, and the enemy does not know they're there, and then you can have these gigantic battles, like Gorlicha Tarnoff in 1915, and the Brusilov Offensive. The other thing, which ties into this, is the Western Front had many railroads, all kinds of roads. The Eastern Front did not. Very few railroads, and if you don't know it, the Austro-Hungarian and German railroads changed gauge at the Russian frontier on purpose. So if you crossed the line, you had a difficulty getting the railroads running, and your army has to be fed, and you had to get equipment. So it's the old story, look where there were major railroad junctions on the Eastern Front, and that's where your major battles would begin. Fewer airplanes are put in the Eastern Front, and yet it's the largest front. Worn out units and pilots and planes are sent to the Eastern Front to rehabilitate. And here's where experimentation is done with aerial warfare. Improvisation was the key with that aerial warfare. But the other thing you had to keep in mind for the Eastern Front, which was critical at all times, was the weather. In the summer when the armies mobilized, it was sickening heat. Soldiers who were not accustomed to marching 100 miles did so in the heat, and many could not do it. For example, the Austro-Hungarian Army, only 25% of the soldiers had served in the regular army. And that helps explain the gigantic losses. The summer heat was terrible. Many soldiers uh, broke down in the heat. You get into the fall in, on the eastern front here and rain. Now, I mentioned the infrastructure. The roads were terrible, particularly in Poland. What, well, the parts of Poland. There was no Poland then. So as soon as you start moving your artillery, the roads are totally a mess. For those who don't know it, well over a half million horses died on the eastern front from starvation, and just dying of overexertion because uh, there wasn't feed for them in the winter. So in the uh, fall, you have the rains, the roads are terrible. The winter, it snows for three or four days. It stops. It's called Tauwetter. 
This is when the snow melts. Both are terrible. Now, if you take reconnaissance, when it snows on the battlefield, you can fly up in the air in these vast areas, and you can't see the roads anymore or the railroads unless they're being used. So that made it very difficult. Anyway, I'm going to do a quick run-through of the battles on the Eastern Front. Carl mentioned Tannenberg. Tannenberg was the greatest defensive victory of the entire war. Why did it happen? It happened because the Russians had signed a treaty back in 1892-1894 promising to field 800,000 soldiers by the 15th and 17th mobilization day. So as two Russian armies tried to move into Prussia, they didn't have all their units, they didn't have their reserves, they didn't have their supply system set up, and they didn't have their code books. With reconnaissance flights, the Germans saw this one army coming across the frontier, and the Germans set up the Iron Ring that would be the Battle of Tannenberg, an entire Russian army annihilated. Very shortly thereafter, the second battle there on the in East Prussia was the Masurian Lakes. And I, I want to mention this about a lot of people, not, you can't read this in a book. The German Eighth Army protecting East Prussia was made up of Prussians. And on purpose, the order was, let the Russians invade. They, they would allow them to come in. They didn't say, you know, let them, you know, but basically they said, let them come in. Because the Cossacks, their mounted horse cav, cavalry, would rape, plunder, murder, burn. I challenge you to find in any book a Cossack prisoner of war taken on the German Eastern Front during the entire war because they were brutal. Well, the Masurian Lakes, the Russian commander gets the troops out in time. Now, uh, what Karl didn't mention was the poor Austro-Hungarian army. Hungarians had not allowed the army to be increased since the Ausgleich in 1867. So the Austro-Hungarian army, as I said, 25% are professional soldiers. They had no money for new guns. All their weapons were obsolete. Their tactics were obsolete. And their commander, <laughs> I'll take credit as the first in history to call a horrible commander, was Konrad von Herzendorf. In fact, I'll tell you this about the Brusilov Offensive because I'll probably forget it. The night before the offensive, he had to go to a birthday party way away from the front, but he wrote Gina. He hated the Italians but loved Gina. She was Italian. He fell in love with this young lady, Gina, who was married to a beer magnet, which I think is a wonderful idea, had seven children very quickly, and he just got tired of her. I'm just saying this because the night before the Brusilov Offensive, Conrad wrote her a 257-page letter, goes to a birthday party, does not know that the, they had decoded the Russian orders. They did it all the time. That's something else that you don't see in the books. There was one guy in Vienna. Every time the Russians changed their code within 24 hours, he had broken it. And you look at all the battles the Austro-Hungarians lost, just think what would have happened if they hadn't known it was coming. <laughs> but anyway, to get, to get back to the background for the Brusilov Offensive, the battles of Lemberg, L-E-M-B-E-R-G. The Austro-Hungarian army with this great man, Conrad, Conrad determined of his 48 infantry divisions, he was going to send 20 against little Serbia with a population of 3 million. That left 28 
to face the Russian colossus of 42 to 43 divisions on the Austro-Hungarian front. In his brilliant mind, he knew that the first soldier could not deboard the trains on the Balkan front until August 12th. If you put the days together, you see the problem. He sent an entire army to the Balkan front that was supposed to be facing the Russians. And I'm going to try to make this short. I wrote a book on it. He decides to attack north because he expects the Germans to attack south. Conrad and the younger Molka lied to each other. They wanted each one to promise an offensive, so Conrad launches two armies to the north. His eastern flank is only his third army of six divisions and the 12th Corps because the rest of the second army was in the Balkans. Recon was great on the northern front. They found the Russians before the Battle of Lublin. On the eastern front, they didn't see any Russians. And yet, as early as the 10th of August, a diplomat had wired the exact number of Russian troops would be coming, a Romanian in fact, and where they'd be. To make a long story short, the Austro-Hungarian Third Army and the 12th Corps, numbering seven divisions, launched an offensive against the Russians on the Eastern Front, which were assumed to be in two or three small groups. One hour before their attack, the Russian 3rd and 8th Armies launched an offensive with 21 divisions. This is why in the opening battles of the Austro-Hungarian War, they had basically lost the war. 40% of their troops dead, wounded, and missing. And this is the other thing for you to keep in mind, they don't mention in books, and I'm sure Paul knows this. When the war started, after the first campaigns, your basic officer, non-commissioned officer, and professional army corps are hurting. They've had a lot of losses. The Austro-Hungarian army is replaced in October 1914, December 1914 for the Carpathian Winter War, and basically it has to be reformed for Gorlitsa Tarnoff. What happens? Reserve officers come in who don't know the language of the Austro-Hungarian troops. The declaration of war was printed in 11 languages. And uh, in, in the book I'm writing for Cambridge on the Austro-Hungarian Army in World War I, I cite a battle on the Italian front where the officers are all dead, the non-commissioned officers are all dead. Soldiers, Slovenes, Croats, Hungarians, Czechs, Germans. You know what the command language was? English. Because they had had that in school. Anyway, to move on, I wrote a book on the Carpathian Winter War. Nobody had ever written on it before. And, you know, Paul, I'm not, this is not an insult. Listen to the Western Front and to the Americans, you read about the blood battles of Verdun and Somme. Carpathian Winter War was in three months. 1.4 million Russian casualties, 800,000 Austro-Hungarian, over 100,000 German. The Germans and Austro-Hungarians are trying to save Fortress Schmitzel. And that was in three months. Verdun was nine months. The Somme was six months. That battle had more casualties than both battles combined. And this is one of the reasons people should study the other fronts. Look at the Italian front. Look at the Balkan front. They're critical. Well, go back to 1914. The Austro-Hungarian army invades Serbia with 20 divisions and they suffered three defeats, which is the reason why the Germans had to keep coming and saving them. 
every year of the war, the Germans had to save the Austro-Hungarian army. They do that after the August battles of 1914. The Battle of Verdun is being fought. The Battle of the Somme is being fought. And yet the Germans can take 15 infantry divisions and three cavalry divisions to counter the Brusilov offensive. That's how good the Germans were. By the way, Gorlice at Tarnoff, they took eight divisions from the Ypres front where they first used gas. They used gas to hide the fact they moved an entire army to the Eastern Front. Anyway, let me quickly go to the Carpathian Winter War. This is one of the most ghastly wars in history. I gave you the casualties, incredible. At night, you could be on the Austro-Hungarian front of the Russian front and you see these black shadows go flying through. You couldn't fire a rifle fast enough or pick it up fast enough, but you knew what it was because the wounded in no man's land would start screaming it was the Carpathian wolves who ate the living and the dead. The cemeteries in Central and Eastern Europe, if you have high ground, are there. In all the snow, in the Carpathian Winter War, the reason the title of my book was Blood on the Snow is because the snow was six feet deep in many, at many occasions. You had to shovel to go on patrol, and if you attacked, you had to shovel to attack. Blood on the snow is the first casualty the blood splattered on the snow, and then boom, in comes the machine guns and the artillery. But anyway, when the Carpathian Winter War is, is over by April 15th, the Germans again have to stop their plans to attack in the West and come save their ally. This is the background to Gorlice Tarnoff, the greatest victory of the Central Powers during the war. They took eight divisions. The ones in the front were wearing Austro-Hungarian uniforms. And this, is, this was on a very quiet part of the front. It was so quiet the peasants were still tilling their ground. And the Russians didn't notice that the peasants disappeared. May 2nd, 1915, almost 1,000 heavy artillery pieces opened fire. And the Russian Third Army was decimated. I've read some of the sources. The Russian soldiers sur survived were stark raving mad. And this is the beginning on a front 20 miles wide. And, and remember this 20 mile wide front because this is one of the keys to Brusilov's successes I'll get to in a couple minutes. The Russians lost a million casualties and two million prisoners of the war. Now, I don't have time to go into the casualties, but look at the casualties on the Eastern Front and then compare them to the Western Front. You'll see some interesting things. Anyway, so that uh, Gorlice Tarnoff takes you to 1916, where, it's where, I'm gonna, where I'm going to start. At the end of 1915, on a very remote area of the, of the Eastern Front, it's actually near the Romanian uh, frontier, the Russians attack the Austro-Hungarian positions. They thought it was going to be an easy victory. But the Austro-Hungarians had brought their artillery up to the front lines, and the Russians had a bad habit of their attacks, t making their soldiers go over a mile, two or three miles to attack. Well, in this case, again, reconnaissance planes and breaking the code, the Austro-Hungarians knew they were coming. They will try again in January 1916. The Austrians win. This is critical to understand the Brusilov offensive, as I will explain. Carl mentioned Lake Narash yesterday. Lake Narash is where the Germans uh, uh, have to defend. The Russians are going to attack to try to take the pressure off for done. 
350,000 German soldiers in March 1916 are going to attack 50,000 Germans. But the Russian, and by the way, you should be aware, the Russian officer corps, I think Carl will agree, were mostly incompetent. Well, they attacked across a multi-mile front. The artillery is literally out of range to hit the German positions, but they have the largest artillery bombardment of the war on the Eastern Front. There was snow on the ground. It actually was frozen with snow on top of it the night before the attack, but they had Tauwetter melting conditions literally overnight, and these Russian soldiers tried to go across this multi-mile front in the mud. The German machine gunners mowed them down. They kept firing because the Russian soldiers were stuck in the mud. They were dead standing up. But the Russians suffered 100,000 casualties. Now, it's the Russian strategy that brings this about, and I'm going to talk about uh, Brusilov in a minute. Brusilov is going to change all the thinking of the Russian general staff. But the point is, at Lake Narash, the Russians had not learned the lessons from the battle in the Bukovina near the Romanian frontier of December 1915 and January 1916. What did Brusilov do that's different? Almost everything. He had just been named commander of that front in the spring of 1916. He had not been the commander of the Austro-Hungarian front. So there's a meeting in Chantilly where they're talking about what are we going to do in 1916, and the idea is that all the Entente forces will launch an offensive at the same time. Well, this is what I didn't mention when I talk about the Germans at Tannenberg, Masurian Lakes, Gorlice, Tarnoff. The Russians, Russian generals did not want to attack the Germans. They knew the troops were better trained and their massive firepower. So at this meeting, Brusilov says, I, I will attack. I will draw off the, the reserves of the Austro-Hungarian army so that the plan you really want for 1916, is, which is July 1st, 1916, the Russian armies on the northern front that outnumbered the Germans in some parts of the front, three to one and seven to one and others, I will do a diversionary attack because the main reason the German and Austro-Hungarian armies were able to survive was that they were able to transfer reserves to any threatened part of the front. Brusilov says, I'm going to stop that. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. And, and, and after this meeting, he calls his four army commanders together. And he says, well, I don't know if he used the word gentlemen. He said, uh, army commanders, we have four fronts here on our front. You will attack at one location it, it has to be at least 20 miles wide. You, anybody know why it has to be 20 miles wide? I mentioned for the other fronts. So you can't be enfiladed by artillery fire. So on four parts of the Austro-Hungarian front, the Russians are going to attack. The army commanders select that position. Now, the Russians only had an advantage of 132,000 soldiers for the Brusilov Offensive. It was 600,000 Russian soldiers on that front and 500,000 Austro-Hungarian and a couple German units. But Brusilov went beyond that. He looked at the Russo-Japanese War to see why the Russians had suffered so many casualties. He looked at the latest Battle of Champagne in, on the Western Front. 
And he said, we've got to do something different. And he's the first Russian commander to utilize air reconnaissance effectively. And what he did, although the central power airplanes outnumber two to one, look at the size of the front. You can't have airplanes everywhere. But what they did, as Carl showed really brilliantly yesterday, I, I compliment you, Carl, is they got the pictures of the Austro-Hungarian positions. Now, uh, it was his talk, I couldn't interrupt, but if you saw the front lines, it looked like little boxes. They were defensive positions that were in ground they were thought to be impenetrable. But the key was they're half underground, keep that in mind. Anyway, the Russian reconnaissance took pictures of all the Austro-Hungarian positions, and one of the mistakes the Austro-Hungarians had made from that battle of December 1915 into January 1916 was to assume that their strategy had been correct there. Put artillery toward the front, keep your reserves toward the front, and that's gonna be disastrous. So Brusilov has those positions rebuilt behind the lines and has his infantry practice attacking them. No Russian commander had done that before. But the other thing he did, which was brilliant, he knew that the Austro-Hungarian army had, had attempted to get out of the Alps and the Trentino to invade Italy, the so-called Straf Expedition, uh, Conrad Hay, the Italians, he wanted to knock them out of the war. Now, if you read books in English, they will say that, uh, most of them will say, except the most recent ones, is that uh, the Austrians had to stop their offensive because of the Brusilov offensive. Absolutely not true. It had already been defeated on the Italian front. But one of the reasons Brusilov volunteered was to save his Italian brothers. He also moved his artillery up to very close to the front lines, but this is the key to understanding the Brusilov Offensive in the opening days. He sapped his troops forward. He moved them forward. Five Russian soldiers, two would crawl up, three are firing to cover them, dig a hole in the ground. As Soon as the dirt was high enough to protect your head, you did it again. When the Russians are going to attack, in some places they're 60 yards from the Austro-Hungarian defensive positions some 75 yards, some 100 yards. Now, what I want you to understand with this is you're, they're going to have her, what's called hurricane artillery fire. Bruce Law brings his guns up. A lot of soldiers died by asphyxiation because of the gas from the shells. But if you have three or four hours of this massive artillery attack and you're in these little underground positions and they are 60 to 75 yards from you, you're in deep doobies. I can't use a bad word because my university, I'd be fired if I said it. Um, but keep in mind, this is the key. You know, I'll say it, this is the key. If I collected those keys, I'd be a rich man. Um, the Austro-Hungarian commander, Conrad uh, von Herzendorf, in his great brilliance, removed the six best combat divisions from his front. He removed 15 artillery batteries, heavy artillery batteries. Now here's where the problem comes in. Conrad and Falkenhahn were having a little spat. There's, nothing, there's no such thing as great allied communication and, and love and all that. So Conrad didn't tell uh, Falkenhahn that he had taken six of his best combat divisions and all his artillery to invade Italy. And of course, Falkenhahn 
didn't tell him he was taking his best units for Verdun. The Russians knew this. They knew it from air recon, and they knew it from prisoners of war, etc. So I want you to keep it in mind with this thing with the Brusilov offensive. Anyway, on June 4th, Russian artillery opened fire. And the Austro-Hungarians, one of the other mistakes they made in December 1915, January 1916, was their first line, they already had the second line 100 meters back, a meter's three feet. Now that Russian artillery is going to get that. And then behind that, the third line was, the third, excuse me, the third line was also too close. You have the artillery bombardment. The Russian soldiers come out of their trenches, not their trenches, their positions at the front, and they attack the Austro-Hungarian positions. Those dugouts I mentioned were 30 feet wide, 90 feet long, and they were maybe 100 meters from each other. The Austro-Hungarian soldiers couldn't get out of the side doors. The Russian soldiers were already there. The artillery had destroyed their, uh, the Russian artillery had destroyed the Austro-Hungarian artillery, and they sweep through there. To show you how devastating the attack was, 24 hours after Brusilov launched his attack, the Austro-Hungarian 4th Army had lost 58% of its effectives, and its 7th Army had lost 54% of its effectives. Now, I had all kinds of detail. I'm just going to skip and just say that in the first days of the offensive, the Russians were very successful. And it's really General Brusilov and his new uh, tactics, and he had picked his army commanders very carefully, too. Well, the Austro-Hungarians start to flee in panic. In one front, hundreds drowned trying to swim across a river because they didn't know how to swim. But Brusilov was brilliant, and then he went back to the old ways. And the tragedy for the Russian troops was he did it as German reinforcements were arriving. It's one thing for a Russian soldier to face an Austro-Hungarian soldier. It was totally different to face German soldiers. So you're going to have a major battle of the Stockhod. It's, it's S-T-O-C-H-O-D, an incredibly strong defensive line. And Brusilov's going to send his first and second elite armies and two others at this over and over again, 20 rows of eight deep into the machine gun fire and into the artillery. They will never totally conquer this position. But meanwhile, those 15 German divisions, infantry divisions and three cav divisions are arriving. And they will stop Brusilov. Now, the only, you know, the battle goes on. So if you understand when the Brusilov offensive is dying out, it's because he's going back to his old tactics and the Germans have what they call in the history books German, the corset, they put the corset front in with the Austro-Hungarians to save them. Now I want to mention something else that ties into this. A lot of people don't know about the Romanian campaign of 1916. On August 27, 1916, Romania declared war on only Austria-Hungary. They assumed the Germans, they weren't going to declare war on the Germans because they assumed wrongly the Germans could not remove troops from Verdun, Somme, and Brusilov. Now, what I want to emphasize is if the Romanians had declared war a month earlier, they would have gotten what they wanted. But they waited too late. The Brusilov offensive was petering out. The Russians were furious. 
They had to move 20 divisions to protect Romania, and their front was extended 250 miles. The Romanian army had 650,000 soldiers, and I knew there was trouble when I was working in the war archives in Vienna when they said before a parade, Romanian officers had to put rouge on their faces. I said, oh, man. <laughs> the Romanians come in because they want to conquer the province of Transylvania, which was part of Hungary. There were three to four million Romanians living in Transylvania. They were far more advanced than the Romanians in the country. But everyone thought when Romania came in, it's going to end the war. We're going to knock the Austro-Hungarian army out of the war, and we're going to be victorious. Well, nobody knows the exact number. Somewhere between 100 and 300,000 Romanian soldiers crossed the frontier into Transylvania. Who's there to stop them? 30,000 reserve soldiers, uh, border guards, etc. <laughs> and they delayed them until the Germans could launch an offensive. Well, to make a long story short, the Bulgarians and the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians are going to beat the hell out of the Romanians. They have 22 infantry divisions and three cavalry divisions. By the end of 1916 already, going to 1917, they're down to six divisions. They've been wiped out. One of the mistakes they made was, of course, they didn't think the Germans could send troops, and they didn't protect the mountains. And that's where the Germans and Bulgarians will come through. But here, air power comes in, too, because there was bombing of Constanza, the major port, and this had a psychological effect on the Romanians, but in particular, there was a railroad junction above Bucharest that the Germans bombed regularly, which stopped Russian reinforcements and supplies from coming in. This is why the Romanians are going to collapse. To tie the Brusilov Offensive uh, in, into the, in, uh, the, excuse me, I'm not talking to the microphone, the Brusilov Offensive. Yes, it was the greatest victory of Russia in the war, but they lost over a million soldiers. And you always read in the books, all the stupid Hungarians and the Austrians, they lost 750,000. The Russians lost over a million. You start adding up the casualties, well over half of their troops are, are casualty one form or another during the war. But to make a long story short, the Russian soldiers are starting to desert en masse. You've probably seen that picture where there's a Russian soldier with a rifle and there are two guys walking. They're leaving the front. They're going home. The peasants were tired of dying. The Russian peasants had no loyalty to Russia. Their loyalty was to their village and province. Well, these soldiers start to fade away in the hundreds of thousands. Between January 1917 and the first Russian Revolution in February slash March, depending on what calendar you use, hundreds of thousands had deserted. And when the revolution comes, well, let me explain something else. Uh, you know, I get carried away here. When the Brusilov Offensive was ending, the German government took uh, Nikolai Lenin and several of his followers put them on a sealed train to go to stir up revolution because the Bolsheviks were the only party in Russia that said we must have peace at any price, stop the war. In one article I wrote, I said, as Lenin got out of his, off the train at the uh, Finland station, that's the northernmost railroad station of the capital, the Russian revolution is just around the corner. 
How does the Bruce Law Offensive fit into it? Because so many soldiers had died, the army had become unreliable. Between January and actually the Kerensky Offensive of July 1917, Kerensky determines to launch one last offensive. In fact, they actually create the largest Russian army of the war. But what they don't tell you is the Russian soldiers wouldn't fight it. They used their minority soldiers. Again, reconnaissance. The Germans and Austro-Hungarians knew this Kerensky slash Brusov offensive was going to occur. They already had plans for it, and the Russians struck on July 1st, 1917. Well, the poor Austro-Hungarians are going to retreat 30 miles. But see, that's critical. If you look at the map, if you have your hands straight up like this, the Russians drive the Austro-Hungarians back 30 miles. On July 19th, the German army strikes from the north, and there is no more Russian army. And it's, part, it's, partly dissolved, it's partly dissolved because of the enormous losses during the war up to that point, Bolshevik propaganda. But from January until the Kerensky Offensive, a lot of fraternization on the front. The Russian soldiers don't want to fight anymore, and the Germans and Austro-Hungarians use this to their advantage. And it'll be you know, one of the major factors that I, I don't have time to get into is look at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. That's B-R-E-S-T-L-I-T-O-V-S-K, because if uh, I was talking to some gentlemen um, in this conference about Versailles, Brest-Litovsk becomes the model for Versailles because it's so brutal. They take one-third of Russian territory. They take almost all their iron and steel, et cetera. Anyway, some of you aren't old enough to know, but this kind of talk I'm giving is like the movie way back when, if it's Tuesday, you're in Belgium. I try to get as much as I could, and I thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.